think we, we all echo the sentiment at the end there that to be like Christ with, with lots of work to be done. Let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, um, we thank you for this time that we can come before you, that we can sing your praises, that we can look to the day when we will be with you in glory. In your face we at last shall see. And how marvelous that will be. And we also deal with the tension that we are not fully Christ-like yet. That we have, uh, your work in us is not yet completed. And there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, So Father, we, we pray that this morning would just be a small part of that. You refining our hearts, of, of drawing impurities out of our lives, drawing God impurities out of my life, exposing to us the areas of our lives where we don't trust you consistently or enough or at all, exposing the areas of our lives where, where Christ and his kingship are not fully felt or are resisted by our flesh. And and Lord, as you expose those to us, we pray that you would also expose your rich, boundless grace by which we're all saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's not uncommon uh, to hear from us, the, the storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, creation being when God uh, put order to the universe. He, he, he created order. He created things in a way that glorified Him. There's this, this theme in the, in the song of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, of, of chaos to order, that if you look deeply, you see it. And then there's uh, the fall, which took the order that God had made and brought chaos into it. And then we have redemption that took that chaos and brings it back to order and, and, and the full fulfillment. And I believe that in our culture, uh, broadly, we really get the first two steps of that. We really get the creation and fall. And this is seen just so clearly in movies. Movies are, are the, uh, the art form of our day and age. It's, it's where a lot of ideas are expressed or are experimented with. And, and in movies, especially, you see it really clearly in the movie trailers where they, they try and encapsulate the plot into just a, as much of a nugget as they can. And, and this is especially true for kids' movies where you have the trailer start out and it's like in an idyllic world where all is well and complete harmonious. Our protagonist is getting along just fine doing well, generally well-liked by all her peers, then everything changed with a steaming pile of chaos and discord dumped over her head. And then the rest of the movie is how to restore what was lost in that. And, and it's, it's in our culture's wrestling of redemption that we, that we have a hard time because our culture wants to get to the, the words at the end, happily ever after. And they want to get there now. And I think a lot of times when we, when we deal with idealism, it, it, it can be very dangerous for the church. Because, you know, last week we were in Colossians 
uh, 3, 5 through uh, 14. And the last few verses of that especially put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and everyone lived happily ever after. That's what, those are the words we want to put after. My Bible doesn't say that. You don't need to ask those questions. Um, but we read those verses and we think, well, if I do my part and he does his part and she does her part and that family gets their act together, then this will be great. We'll all get along. We'll only have to forgive each other for like a week or two and then we'll just have it figured out. And so we get this idealism that the church is going to be a perfect place, that, that there's not going to be these faults, there's not going to be these hurts, and it's just not true. As we, as we talked about, sanctification is this really slow process where hopefully we're, we're compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient, bearing with one another, we're loving, we're forgiving each other. Hopefully all those things are true, and at the same time, all those things are critically necessary because of the brokenness we're still dealing with. And so we get this vision of the church from those verses of this idyllic world where everyone gets along, there's perfect harmony, never any discord, and then reality comes and smacks us upside the head. And chaos comes in. And you don't have, you know, so many times... I don't know how many times you guys hear this. I don't know how many times I've heard this. People say, I wish it was like the early church. The early church, they just had it together. They, they were rock stars. They had great faith. People were getting saved all the time. They had everything in common. They prayed. They always met in each other's homes. The early church had it right. We have it wrong. If, if you think the early church always had it right, just read 1 Corinthians. They were suing each other. They weren't disciplining sin, even sin that like the, the pagan culture was like, oh, that's, that's not okay. Like you, you shouldn't do that. Like, eat, like we're pagans uh, and we think that's wrong. And so you guys need to get your act together, church. Like when the culture's correcting church um, for moral behavior, we're, we're not in a good, good spot. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And so when chaos comes, we have to respond. The question is, where does your response come from? Is your response coming from yourself? Is it coming out of your own gut reaction, out of your own background, out of your own uh, desire or need to be right? Or is your reaction to that chaos built on the foundation of Christ and who he is? Paul's letter to Colossae <clears throat> excuse me, is very similar to his letter to Rome in that he starts off with a doctrinal section. Here's theology. Here is proper orthodoxy. Here, here's the right beliefs to have. In Colossians, it's largely centered around the person and work of Christ. It's very Christological. And then out of this orthodoxy comes your lifestyle or your orthopraxy. So we have orthodoxy. What we believe orthopraxy is that God-inspired, theology-inspired behavior and lifestyle. And now we are full-blown into the orthopraxy part of Colossians. 
That Jesus is God. He is creator. He is heir of all creation. He is reconciler, justifier. He reconciled all things by the blood of his own cross. Jesus is the one and only fully sufficient Savior. That's the orthodoxy. So what does an orthopraxy inspired by an all-sufficient Savior look like when chaos comes? And, and I think these next verses are a big part of what it looks like, uh, not just in chaos, but just the dailiness of life that can sometimes be very grinding for us and wear us down. So what is... What does an orthopraxy inspired by a sufficient Savior look like in not just chaos, but, but this daily grind of life? What we see is that Jesus overpowers the fallen chaos around us through his sufficiency. And, and specifically, the sufficiency, first of all, of his great peace. Let's read these verses. I'm going to start in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here we have it. Jesus overpowers the fallen chaos around us through the sufficiency of his great peace. In the upper room, Jesus told the disciples, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Now Jesus told them this on the eve of what would turn out to be the worst day of their lives up to that point. Probably the worst day of their lives, period. Because Jesus got crucified the next day. And so this peace that Jesus is talking about, this isn't the peace you experience while laying in a hammock in a cool breeze on the beach. That peace is there because there's absolutely nothing wrong. You know, you got your hammock, you're, drink, you're drinking out of a coconut, uh, there's a shade umbrella if the palm tree isn't enough, there's the ocean, nothing's wrong, that's peace and tranquility. The peace that Jesus is describing is different than that. The peace that Jesus is describing is a peace that overpowers the chaos. It's a peace that you feel in the midst of the storm. Similar to, you know, you have this eye of the hurricane and you're in it, you're experiencing this calm and all around you everything's falling apart. Except that the eye doesn't leave you. The eye moves with you because Jesus doesn't leave you. And so it's a peace that overpowers and overshadows. It is stronger than the chaos. And here Paul He gives a key function for this peace. You know, in Philippians, he says the peace of God that may guard your heart. Here, it's the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Theologian F.F. Bruce points out that that the imagery here is for the, uh, the, the peace of Christ to be an arbitrator or an umpire for our hearts. That it tells our hearts how to respond in chaos. One commentator says, let the peace of Christ be umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor. And the key here for us is to not do what we've all seen. The arguing with the umpire. 
Don't go out, kick dirt at the peace of Christ. Be like, no, you don't understand. I have a better view from the nosebleed seats to know that this is the time to panic. Don't argue with the peace of Christ. Don't argue with this umpire. Submit to it. Trust it. I read this this week. How much misery would we avoid if we permitted the peace of Christ to umpire in our hearts? How many words would we hold back if He were the arbitrator in our lives? How many sleepless nights would we forego if we did that? How the church needs this too since we're called the peace in one body. So it's one thing to say, okay, I get it. The peace of Christ should rule, but where does this peace come from? The peace comes from an awareness of Christ. And as we look at this one letter, how does Paul describe Jesus? The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The heir of all creation. He, is, he created all things for Himself, by Himself. He sustains all things. Through Him, all creation is held together. And He is the reconciler of all creation by the blood of His cross. See, it's really easy. It was really easy in the beginning of June when we looked at Colossians 1 to get really excited about how great our Savior is. But then when we have a relationship that's breaking, when we get a medical diagnosis that that has the word terminal attached to it, when our financial world falls out from underneath us, are we still going to say, Jesus sustains all things? Because that's the moment where we can hit the panic button or we can let the peace of Christ be the umpire and say, calm down. Jesus is on the throne. Whatever the circumstance you're facing, whether it's a brokenness in a relationship, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's terminal illness, whether it's financial strain, whether it's stress at work, Jesus is bigger than that. And remember that Jesus, believer, remember this, Jesus dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And they're both praying to God the Father on your behalf. Jesus said in John 10, I hold my sheep in my hand and no one can take them out. Romans 8 tells us that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. So whatever you're facing with that that verse in Romans 8, you can just put that in parentheses. This can't separate me from the love of Christ. And I, I encourage you to take time this week. Read John 10. Read Romans 8. Write out the promises that Jesus makes. What does Jesus say about himself? What does Jesus say about you? What does Paul say about God? What does Paul say about you? And look at that and study it and dwell on it. And thank God for that. So you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body. There's a couple things going on here. First of all, we need to 
we need to remember the original context of this. This is a letter not written to a guy named Colossi. This is a letter written to a church. And, and an interesting thing to do with Paul's letters written to church, take time, and it, carve out some time when you have time to read it twice. Colossians is a good letter for this. Ephesians is a good letter for this because they're shorter. Take time when you have time to read it twice. The first time, read every you as individual, as though it's written to you. And then the second time, read it as though every you is written to a group of which you're a part. Westchester, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as you were called in one body. The other thing I really want to point out here is calling. There's so many times we're like, I just don't know what my calling is in life. And we go around looking for this very specific thing. Like we're like, okay, Gabriel, you appeared to Mary. Why can't you appear to me too and tell me what I'm supposed to do? And we, we keep looking for this very specific thing. A lot of God's call in your life, most of God's call in your life, if not all of it, will be very general. You want to know what God's call in your life is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything He commanded. And surely Jesus will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's your calling in life. Obedience to Scripture. John Piper says, if you want to hear God talk to you, read your Bible out loud. We need to quit overthinking this. Here, our calling is to be one body, to be unified. Now, our calling is not to be unanimous. Our calling is to be unified. Unanimous, if it was unanimous, it would say that love binds everything together in perfect monotone. But here we have perfect harmony. And harmony is when you have many notes coming together at the same time to make something better than the one note could be on its own. So let's have variety. Let's be diverse. And let's be unified around the name of Jesus. This is what we are called to. And this is what we need. We need to be unified with the peace of Christ ruling. Westchester, our church is 135 years old. There have been so many times, I only know of a handful in that history, where we have absolutely needed the peace of Christ to rule us in the midst of chaos, in the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of change, of location, of name. From Swedish Free Mission Church to Highland Park Evangelical Free Church to Westchester Evangelical Free Church. And I know we're going to face more times when we need the peace of Christ to rule us. Whether it's losing a dear member of our church, like we lost Loriana this week. A dear sister who's had such an impact on, on a lot of people in here and has just lived a very quiet, godly life. She's a dear sister. 
We're going to face societal pressure. We're going to deal with sin that needs to be corrected. That can't be left unsaid. And in all of those times, the peace of Christ has to reign. It has to rule. It has to direct us. The peace of Christ will get us through that. His grace will get us through. Not worldly wisdom. And we have, and be thankful. The peace that we experience is tied to our thankfulness. And and our thankfulness and our peace in Christ can become a really healthy cycle where we have chaos, we experience the peace of Christ that, that brings us to thankfulness that the peace of Christ ruled that we had security in a moment where logically we probably shouldn't have, but, but we had that peace in our hearts which makes us more thankful, which keeps us aware of God's work in our life so the next time chaos comes, we're ready for it with the thankfulness and the peace and they keep feeding one another. Jesus overpowers the fallen chaos around us through the sufficiency of His great peace. Also through the sufficiency of His great Word. Let the Word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There is an ocean of difference between trivial knowledge of the Bible and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you. And to see this, you you need to look no further than academia. There there is an academic treatment of the Bible that is not godly in one way, shape, or form. And you have people with more degrees than Fahrenheit who, who read the Bible all the time without a sliver of faith. And they treat it as as a historical thing. There's, there's stories in here that are somewhat true, but the supernatural got woven in over time. And they, they can pick out the themes of Scripture. They can pick out the links in Scripture as well or better than, than any of us. And they have not an ounce of faith. And they, they teach that to have faith is you, you've taken a fable too seriously. All these people who have faith, who believe this, are... are, are disillusioned by it. And they just, they, they can't get their head on straight and it's, it's caused so much harm and so our job is to get them to not believe it. But they know the Bible, they read it as much or more than us. You know, in, in John 15, a lot of times we think of John 15, we think, oh, abide in Christ, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. But there's multiple times in John 15 where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. This is a two-way street. It's not just read your five verses a day or your five minutes a day or, your, or whatever your devotion is. It is let the Word of God change you. Let His Word dwell in you richly. A great picture of this from Scripture is Psalm 119. And I'm just going to read one one section out of of Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. But if you, I'd encourage you to read a section of eight verses, a strophe a day, and just see where that takes you and read it over and over again to get this 
depth of your need for Scripture. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and not forget your word. We need God's word to dwell in us to this level. We need to meditate on it. We need to hide God's Word in our our life. We need, like Psalm 119 says, for God's Word to be the light to our path and the lamp for our feet. I probably mixed those up, but but you can sing the Amy Grant song later and, and just know it. But it's letting the Word of God change you and not just your outlook, but your daily life. James has really harsh words for those who would read the Bible only for trivia. He says, don't merely read the Word of God and, and be so deceived, but actually do what it says. He says, to, to, read, to read Scripture and not do what it says is, is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Be like me coming to you and boasting in my lovely locks that, that just go on and on. But we need to not only be hearers of God's Word and readers of God's Word, but doers of God's Word. That His Word would dwell in us and that would bring about action. And in this case, the action is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We, I hope so much that you don't read God's Word and then never do anything about that and never do anything with that wisdom. We need each other in this way. We need to be mutually dependent on one another for God's Word. So that we come together, we have, we have a word of encouragement, a word of challenge. When someone's life is falling apart, we can come and we can, we can read Psalm 121 together and weep together and be thankful that our prayers reach heaven and the one who is on high is our help. That when we're wrestling with sin, we can can go to Scripture and point out the assurance of God's forgiveness, that He he cleanses you from all unrighteousness, that he, He separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. You are not unqualified to share God's Word with each other or with me. We need this. This is giving, receiving. This is experiencing and extending God's love as we teach and admonish one another. It is not just for the pastors and the teachers. All of us can be doing this with one another. And then, and then he, he goes right from that to singing. This is not Buddy the Elf singing. This is not going through church going, I'm singing, I'm singing psalms and spiritual songs. We're so happy to be together with the Lord. You know, no. 
This is let the worship of God be in you as well as the Word of God. Pastor Austin is very deliberate in the songs that we sing. That the, that the songs we sing accurately depict the God of the Bible. Not the God the culture wants to be the God of the Bible. And I hope that your worship is not limited to the four or five songs we sing on a Sunday morning. I hope that your heart, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, I hope that your heart is echoing with praises to our God. And that even as you interact with one another, that your worship would be shown. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives the same instruction, but it's preceded with, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit would have the same control of your life that that whiskey does on an alcoholic. Would you be so controlled by the Holy Spirit? Would you be so filled with the Holy Spirit that the worship of God is what comes out of you? And here we have it again. To do this, not begrudgingly, but with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I like to make fun of the song, They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love, because it is the most depressing melody in all of hymn writing. You can sing the words, but be happy about it. (laughs) Jesus overcomes the chaos around us by the sufficiency also, not just of his peace and his word, but of his great name. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Just in case Paul left anything out, just in case there was a sliver of your life not yet addressed, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord. This is as all-encompassing as it gets. We have our interpersonal relationships. We have our corporate relationships as a church. You have your personal life outside of church. The things that nobody sees or hears from your life, whatever you do in word, whether it's in, in walk or in talk, do it to the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus is not a hashtag. And if you don't know what a hashtag is, find someone who doesn't know what a pound sign is and you guys can educate each other. Um, but here's, this is so much more than just, oh, in the name of Jesus, I did it in the name of Jesus. Because here's the deal. Your coworkers know you're a believer. Your neighbors know you're a believer. Your family knows you're a believer. Whether you want to or not, your words and actions reflect the name of Jesus. They are done in the name of Jesus whether you want them to or not. And your words and your actions will reflect the name of Jesus to our culture, to our world, to your loved ones, to your neighbors and coworkers and family. And so I I pray and I hope that for myself, because I need so much help in this, and and for you, that, that our words and our actions 
will, will carry the name of Jesus by carrying the character of Jesus, by carrying the love of Jesus, by carrying the grace of Jesus, the reconciliation of Jesus. The, the example, as, as Pastor Josh and I will be going through in the next two weeks, of what Jesus says and models for our marriages. And what God cares about for our families, for how we interact with our children and our co-workers. Everything you do bears the name of Jesus. So are we bearing the name that is above every name? The name that at, every, at the mention of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, earth, and below the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the name that we, that we ambassador as we go out. So as we reflect that name, are we representing His great name with short tempers, with worldly wisdom, with political divisiveness or greed? Or are we representing His great name with love? with compassion, with meekness and humility, forgiveness and servanthood. In order to do everything in the name of Jesus, you need to really know Jesus. And and one of the sad things is when we as believers, we say, you know, we, we pray a prayer, we come to Sunday school, we, we get the, the Bible trivia part, but it's not quite dwelling in our hearts. And we say, oh, I'm going to go out and do that in Jesus' name. And we don't really know Jesus. We don't know Him well. Maybe He's an acquaintance. Oh, I pray that we would know Jesus in an experiential way, that we would be very familiar with what Jesus has done in our hearts, with, as the video was saying, with what Jesus has really called us to, to be like Him. And not just to have our happy life of which Jesus is part of, but that we would have a life that is in full submission to Jesus, no matter how it conflicts with our personal desires. that our words and our actions would reflect the words and actions of Christ. This fall with our Adult Bible Fellowship, we're going to be going through the book of Matthew. And I I think we're going to be a different group of people at the end of studying Matthew. I really hope that the book of Matthew and taking that close of a look at Jesus changes us so that come next May and June, we're a bit different than we are now. And here yet again, be thankful. Giving thanks to God, the Father, through Him, Jesus Christ. I grew up with a pastor who would say something to the effect of, if the Bible says it once, you need to do it. If the Bible says it twice, God's really trying to get your attention on it. And if it says it three or more times, well, it's, it's time to do some evaluating. You really got it. God really, really means this. And here three times in three verses, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Gratitude cannot and should not be missing from our expression of faith. We are not the entitled, spoiled children of God. 
who deserve it. We have been bought with the blood of Christ, adopted into his eternal family. We are co-heirs with Christ. And he changed you, believer, from being hostile in mind towards him to being an adopted child of Christ, not receiving a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption through which we can cry out, Abba, Father. If you can't be thankful for that, then I don't know what you can be. That thankfulness should be in us all the time just for the fact that we're called children of God. And at the same time, we are told that this thankfulness in in the wording here, some of the wording here in the original language is, is not, well, be thankful already, but that we would be becoming thankful that we would have gratitude and that gratitude would be growing and growing and growing. And the the word thankful is is the same as the root word for Eucharist, which is the communion service. It, It stems out of Christ's sacrifice. And the celebration and remembrance of what He's done for us, that when we recognize the sufficiency of Jesus and what He's done for us, that thankfulness is unavoidable. This week I had the, uh, the privilege to, to sit down with Lori Onnen. And I've, I've always enjoyed the times I've had for her. And she asked me to pass on a few things. She said, please tell the church I say Hello. Tell them I'm going to miss them. Lori would have been 98 in September. And a couple times she said, I came to know Jesus as my Savior when I was 12. I've been with the Lord. I've walked with the Lord since then. It's been a long time. And then she'd just smile and say, God is so good. And I'm so grateful for all He's done for me. I wish everyone could know how good God is. And she said, tell you guys, never forget how good God is. I then thanked her for writing my sermon for me. No. Um, But isn't that something? Here's this woman, nearly 98 years old, been walking with Christ since she was 12. And all she can talk about in her last hours is the goodness of God. Our gratitude to God draws us to His work and the sufficiency of Jesus. It is a constant reminder of how great He is. That His peace and His Word and His name can strongly and should and will overshadow the troubles of this world, even amid the fallen chaos that we're in. Our thankfulness fixates our hearts and minds on the completed work of Christ. It puts our problems in perspective because the cross and the resurrection have the final word, not our chaos. And it shows solution Because of what Christ has done, what he's commanded us to, 
the example he's given us and the promises he's made and the fact that he is returning. That's why the peace of Christ can rule. That's why the word of God should dwell in our hearts. That's the great name we ambassador in word and deed. Our thankfulness is not only a response to what God has done, but a fuel to keep walking with Him in obedience, whatever He locationally, vocationally, or relationally calls us to. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You. We thank You that You are abundantly faithful We thank you for the reconciliation we have in Jesus. We thank you that we can know you and that you, our great holy God, would desire to know us, even to the point of sacrificing your own son. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. Amen.